0: If you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning, which is a passage all about killing sin for Christ. See, in the book of Colossians, Paul has been laying out the supremacy and sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly as it affects our lives as believers, as those who, by God's grace, have trusted and found new life in Him. Paul reminded us back in chapter 1, verse 4, that we have found faith and love and hope in Christ Jesus. He reminded us in chapter 1, verse 14, that we have been redeemed and forgiven in Christ Jesus. He reminded us in chapter 1 verse 23 that we have been reconciled to God and been set free from all accusations against us in Christ Jesus. He reminds us in chapter 2 verse 3 that we have been filled with all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ Jesus in Colossians 2 9 through 10 that we have been filled with him who is the fullness of God and as Chapter 2, verse 19 says, Paul reminded us that we have been given spiritual growth and life directly from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. As Paul summarized it all last week in chapter 3, verse 4, Christ is your life. We have been given a brand new identity, brand new heart, a brand new mind, outlook, and life in Jesus. The only problem is, We don't always live like it. We're a lot like Lazarus in John 11. After four days, if you remember, being dead, Jesus calls him back to life. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus walks out. He is full of brand new life in Jesus. The only problem is, he's still all wrapped up in all those dirty, filthy, stinking, stained grave clothes of his death. And so Jesus tells them next to take those off, unbind him, and let him go. That's like us. Jesus has raised us from the dead, and we are full of brand new life in him. The only problem is, we're still very much wrapped up in our old grave clothes, the remnants of our old fallenness. And if we're to live, and if we're to move, and if we're to have our being for the glory of God, We have got to get those things off. That is what our passage before us today is all about. We just saw in the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3 that we as believers ought to focus our wills, our minds, and our hearts on Jesus. If you take that seriously, it it will not take you long before you realize there is something deeply still wrong. There's still something wrapping around us. That we want to do what's right, as Paul said in Romans chapter 7. But I keep on doing the things I don't want to do. Why is that? It's because we've still got our old grave clothes on, the remnants of our own fallenness. And our passage before us today is all about shaking off those old, dirty, stinking grave clothes that have nothing to do with our new life in Christ, and to kill sin for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how we as redeemed show that Jesus truly is preeminent and of supreme worth. It is by killing sin for Christ. Paul is going to address three areas in our lives in which we are to kill sin. Paul mentions first that there are sinful desires found within you that you must put to death. That's going to be in verses 5-7. through Second, there is a sinful disgust towards those around you that you must also put to death. That's in verse 8. And then finally, there there are sinful deceptions that are spread among you in the body of Christ that you must put to death also. So if we're to be killing sin for the glory of Jesus, if He is to be preeminent in all things, even over us, we must be putting to death sinful desires found within us, sinful disgust towards those around us, and sinful deceptions that are spread among us. This is how we manifest the life of Christ in this world. This is how we show that Christ is our life. By killing sin by and for Him. And so, with that in mind, let's read Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words in Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them away. you must put them all away: anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do do not lie to one another This is the Word of God which we love and meditate on all the day. Let's pray. Father, we we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how it will show us the thoughts and intentions of our hearts this morning. We thank You for how it will show us the glory and cleansing power of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we rejoice that You are a good, good God. And in Your goodness, You seek to purge us from all that which is less than good. And to that end, You have given us all the resources of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might honor You in this world as we ought. Father, we know what we believe. We know that Jesus is worthy and wonderful. But far too often, we, have, we let other idols rule our hearts. So I pray that You would do a work within us this morning. We pray. By Your Spirit, accompany the teaching of Your Word with power. Bring conviction and confession and cleansing and commitment today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we're to show that Jesus Christ is preeminent, and above all, in all things, it all begins by taking a close, a long, and a hard look at ourselves. And that's exactly where God God's Word leads us today, towards the importance of killing sin For Christ. And the first place you and I must begin is by putting to death sinful desires within you. Paul writes there in verse 5, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Now notice, I want you to notice first and foremost, that this is a concluding statement. Paul says, Therefore, in other words, In light of what I have already said, you must put to death what is earthly in you. So what has Paul already told us in this letter? Well, he's told us a lot, but most directly related to this morning's passage, Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 13, that in Christ we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So in Jesus, the darkness of sin no longer holds absolute sway over us. We have been delivered from sin's dictatorship, and the ruling power of our lives is no longer sin, it is Jesus. So put to death what is earthly in you. Later in Colossians 2 verse 11, Paul says something very similar, where he states that at the moment we were saved, Christ cut off from us the controlling power of our sinful flesh. Sin's power has been removed if you have trusted and been placed into Christ Jesus. And although sin, with its various passions, still dwells in our fallen flesh, sin no longer controls us through it. In Jesus, we have the ability now to at last serve God and no longer serve sin. So put to death what is earthly in you. And then finally, in Colossians 3, verse 2, which we looked at last week, we read, for you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, positionally, you are are as far removed and disconnected from sin as Christ is, who is seated at the right hand of God. That's the truth, believer. So put to death what is earthly in you. That's Paul's argument, the motivation. And I want you to get this. This is important. If you hear only one thing today, hear this. The motivation for putting to death what is earthly in you is your identity in Christ. I find this immensely encouraging because what we are about to look at here are some of the most deeply entrenched sins imaginable. The ones that cling on with tick-like tenacity within the darkest crevices of our lives The sins that Paul is about to mention here are the ones that most of us would say are the hardest to kill. And yet, Paul says, you put them to death. Keep on fighting. Don't give up. Get back in there and fight the good fight of faith because despite how it might feel right now, there is glory and there is victory in Jesus. Look at the previous verse. The end of verse 4 literally ends with what word? Glory! Glory! Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. There is glory and there is victory in Jesus and you are in Him. So fight with all the resources of Christ until you see glory. Until you see victory. Until you see that sin slaughtered beneath your feet by the power of Christ. See, the motivation for putting to death what is earthly in you is your identity in Christ. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus this morning, I want you to know, don't ever think there's not hope. There is always hope. I get it. There are so many times we as Christians will struggle over the same sins over and over and over again. And we can get to the point where we start thinking there's just no hope that nothing is ever, ever going to change. Listen, believer, it is at that point... That you must stand upon the promises of God regarding who you are in Christ and the grace and hope that He has promised you in Him. Never forget that with God all things are possible. So, as someone who is united to the risen Christ by faith, never, ever, ever give up fighting. Never give in. Never stop. Keep fighting. Keep clinging. Keep running, because the work that He has done in you already guarantees victory. And in the end, and even before the end, you will see victory because you are in Christ. You have died to the things of this world. So now put to death what's earthly in you. And Paul gets very specific here on what is earthly within us that we must put to death with all the resources that Christ has given us. He lists five sins that every believer is to be actively killing. He lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And I want you to see the connection here between these five sins listed. They are not randomly mentioned by Paul. There's a close connection and a progression that happens here that Paul wants to reveal. Paul begins by using sexual immorality as the premier example of sinful desires that still lodge within our unredeemed flesh. He could have used other sins. In fact, he mentions them later and you could apply the same principle that he applies to sexual immorality to them. He mentions later in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. But here he begins with sexual immorality. And he burrows down deep, layer by layer, to eventually expose the true cause and true motivation behind all sin, not just sexual. And I cannot think of a more important and relevant sin to expose, to denounce, and to call for repentance for this morning among the body of Christ in our culture than the sin of sexual immorality. According to a Barna poll conducted back in 2014, over one-third of all Christian men and women aged 40 and younger in evangelical churches today struggle with pornography on a monthly basis at least. Millions of dollars are being spent on filters, accountability programs, purity books with little impact. Beyond that, there are countless men and women who profess the name of Christ and yet aren't even bothered by the sin. Sexual immorality and impurity that is, not, that is improper even to be named among the saints according to Ephesians 5.3 is yet today, even among people in the church considered totally proper and acceptable to be read in a book or to be viewed on the big screen or to be streamed into living rooms through HBO or Netflix as long as it's accompanied by a fascinating storyline or, fa- or a fantasy environment, then it's okay. We've totally lost what it means to walk as children of light. And to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what Paul does here in this passage. He takes the unfruitful work of sexual immorality and he exposes it for what it really is. The word here in the Greek is pornia. It means illicit sex. In other words, God draws a very clear line in the sand here and He says that engaging in any sexual act outside of the one-man, one-woman covenant of marriage is a sin. It is sexual immorality. This includes fornication, adultery, masturbation. It includes homosexuality, unlawful divorce and remarriage. It includes polygamy against the spouse of your youth. God calls all those acts immoral, and sinful now this was and is wildly countercultural in the ancient world sexual relationships before marriage and outside of marriage was the normal and accepted practice I don't even think I have to say nothing's changed the world still advocates for living together and having sex before marriage though God calls it fornication the world calls it good advice to test the waters before marriage, according to a Pew Research study conducted in 2019, more Americans aged 18 through 44 have experienced living with someone outside of marriage 59% than have ever experienced even being married 50%. And the world still advocates for having sex outside of marriage. You pick up magazines, you turn on the news, you'll hear these ideas of open marriages, or friends with benefits, or having multiple spouses even beyond the wife of your youth, the mantra today is, if it feels good, just do it. Well, the Bible clearly forbids any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman in it at all, because it's not just, if it feels good, do it. What we are called to is, if it honors Christ, do it. It's not about me, it's about Him. The Bible clearly forbids any sexual activity outside the marriage between one man and one woman, any at all. In the Old Testament, it was a national crime, punishable to death. And it is repeatedly condemned as well in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, it clearly states, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is why you see the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, 20, and 29 say avoid sexual immorality. That's why you see Paul horrified in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1 that sexual immorality had arisen and even been tolerated by the Corinthian church. And that's why he tells them later in chapter 6 verse 18 to flee from it, not be proud in it. It's because sexual immorality is not in accord with your identity with Jesus Christ. In fact, it is the first sin listed in Galatians 5.19 among the characteristics of unredeemed flesh that war against the fruit of the Spirit. It's for this reason that Paul tells the believers in Ephesus sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. In other words, not only should you avoid the actions of sexual immorality, you should avoid even the appearance of it. It is so antithetical to Christ because you see, this is another sermon, Sexual relationships is to be a picture of the gospel, which is a picture of purity and devotion and commitment and love and selflessness. And every one of those sins I just listed are antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is about Christ's glory. This is how fervently God calls on His children to put to death and to flee from the sins of sexual immorality. We must put it to death. We must not tolerate it. We must not overlook it. We must actively seek to do everything possible to purge it from our lives. Now I could give some practical protections against this. Like avoid being alone. Or talking alone with someone of the opposite sex who is not your spouse, no matter how young or old or familiar they might be to you. And that is an excellent guideline that I even have for myself. It's a way that I can stay above reproach from accusations. But frankly, suggestions like that do little good when you realize that the sin of sexual immorality is actually the offspring of impurity. That is unclean, filthy thoughts. See, every sinful action springs from a sinful thought. Every man or woman who has failed in remaining pure by his actions failed a long time ago by remaining pure in his mind and heart. Every sinful action springs from a sinful thought. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A lustful, filthy, unclean thought is always behind a lust, lustful, filthy, unclean action. And this is precisely what Jesus says in Mark 7.21, From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, adultery, sensuality. See, sexual immorality, adultery, sensuality, it all comes from evil thoughts and intentions of the heart. The problem that we have when we're dealing with sexual immorality and attempting to kill it is not a problem with our actions. It's a problem with our mind and our hearts. That's why Ephesians 5.3 says that we're to avoid sexual immorality even in speech. So I would encourage you in terms of your own friends that you keep, watch out for people who joke around about how physically attractive so-and-so is, maybe in a movie or show or a commercial or whatever. That speech comes from somewhere. As Jesus says in Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. People with sensual mouths always have sensual minds. For as a man thinketh, so is he. Impure behavior always begins with impure thoughts. Therefore, the battle against sin, especially sexual sin, always begins in the mind. Put to death impurity. Again, I could give practical advice here. Like, get an internet filter. Put your computer in a public place. Cut your cable. Don't read these books. Don't watch these shows. Get an accountability partner. Read this book on purity. Memorize these verses, etc. And again, all of those are good suggestions. One that I myself have used. But all of those actions, even memorizing Scripture, will do little good if it's in your mind, if you do not realize that your sensual thoughts spring from, as we'll see next, passion and evil desire. You see, you could cut yourself off from every outside influence, you could memorize all the scripture verses in the world, but all of that will do you very little good in the end until you realize the reality that there is still a part of you that desires sin. Because deep down all sexual immorality and unclean thoughts spring from evil passions and desires. These are the same two terms that Paul gives in First Thessalonians four five, where he says Christians are not to live in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Right? These are the desires that seek to take advantage of someone. It is the burning, insatiable yearning that is waiting to satisfy itself in sin. See the problem of sexuality, of, of sexual immorality goes way deeper than just your thoughts. The problem is that you still have grave clothes on. You still have evil passions and desires that are clinging to you. And until you acknowledge that you have evil passions and desires within you that must be killed, as much as it abhors you that you must realize that there is something about you that actually wants this, then you will always find a way around that filter. You will always find a way to watch those shows. You will always keep on finding a way to lie to or to avoid your accountability partner. You will keep finding a way to neglect that book. And you will keep finding a way to excuse away that verse. Because a person always does what he wants. And if you want sin, you will do it. In order to kill sexual morality, you must humbly admit that there is something still horribly fallen about you. There must be confession and acknowledgement of the truth. There's still a part of you that desires to sin. You've got a problem not with your actions. You've got a problem not even with your thoughts. You've got a problem with your very desires and affections. But Paul doesn't leave us there. And I can't either. He is not satisfied pointing out the branches of sexual sin. He wants to take an axe to the very root of the tree. And so Paul shows us that all struggles with sexual immorality find their origin in the hidden sin of covetousness which is idolatry. This is the evil root from which all sins grow. It's the desire for more. It's the desire to have what is forbidden. We learn in James 4, verse 2, that covetousness is the source of all fights and quarrels, as well as lusts, passion, and sin. James says that you see something and you don't have it, so you want it and you lust for it and you war over it and you fight for it. It all comes down to covetousness, which is idolatry. Let me put it simply, a simple definition of sin. Sin is worshiping yourself rather than worshiping God. That's sin. Worshiping yourself rather than worshiping God. If you truly worship God, then you ask this, God, what pleases you? And you seek to do it. But if you worship yourself, you ask, Self, what pleases me? And you do that instead. Right? All sin is idolatry. Idolatry. And out of that deep-seated covetousness is generated the evil desire that inflames into a filthy thought that produces a sinful deed. Every sin is idolatry. Every sin is a violation of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You're either worshiping and doing what God wants, or you set yourself up as the one to be satisfied, the one to be worshipped, and the one to be pleased. That's sin. Choosing yourself over Christ. You see, you don't have a problem with your actions. You have a problem with your worship. And So Paul is helping the Colossian church and us by saying this. Listen, you have got to kill this sin. You have got to put it to death. And the only way that's ever going to happen is if you start worshiping Christ above all and nothing else. It begins in your heart. See, most people tackle the the sexual sin Most people in tackling sexual sin look to a form of aestheticism, right? Well, you want to uh, tackle sexual immorality in your life? Well, then stay away from the computer, stay away from television, stay away from the movie theater, stay away from magazine sections, don't go here, avoid that, etc., But we need to remember, even as Colossians 2 verse 23 stated in the last chapter, you could cut yourself off from every perceived sinful external influence in your life and that will do you no good in stopping the indulgence of the flesh because the problem of your life in dealing with sin is not your circumstances. It is your heart. The problem is not outside yourself. The problem is inside yourself. Is a problem of idolatry, of covetousness, of not worshiping and adoring and loving Christ above all. So, how do we begin to kill this hidden idolatry lodged within us as believers? And again, this is not about filling our brains. We've come to the application part of Colossians because this has to transform our lives. The statistics I looked at this week about the church in America. As I consider my own past, the name of Christ is blasphemed by believers who do not put these sins to. So how do we kill it? How do we kill it for Christ? I want to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. I want to show the world that Jesus is preeminent. I want to show the world that there is a risen Savior with resurrection life that I am connected to that can transform your life And your destiny as he has done with mine. So how do I show that? How do I kill sin for Christ? So that I might set my my will and my mind and my heart on him above all. How do I kill sin? How do I kill the idolatry of sin and self that seeks to keep Christ off the throne of my heart? The answer, as simply as I can put it, is this. And I could approach this from many different angles. This is this one I'll throw out for you today. This is how you kill sin. Abhor the nature of sin and adore the nature of Christ. That's the key to victory over sin. Learn to abhor the nature of your sin and learn to adore the nature of Christ. So, first, abhor the nature of sin. It deserves God's wrath. Your sin deserves God's wrath. Paul says in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now it's not coming upon us. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All of those legal demands that were set against us, as we saw back in Colossians chapter 2, have been nailed to the cross. The wrath of God was absorbed in Christ on our behalf when He died. We do not have to face God's wrath, but... Yes, the wrath of God is coming on all of those who are outside of Christ. And that in itself ought to serve as a deterrent for us as believers. If you know that eternal souls are going to be condemned to eternal torment because of their unrepentant love for these very sins, why would you dare hold these very same iniquities so close and so long to your own heart, believer? This will be the sin that condemns them. Cast them away, far away. Do whatever it takes. These sinful actions characterize those who will one day drink full strength the cup of God's wrath. Do you desire to be like them? Theirs is a state of pity, not a state to participate in. We must never forget that sin deserves and draws God's wrath. He will deal with it. Romans 1.18 says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 2.5 says but because of your heart and impenitent heart you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And Ephesians 5.6 says because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Make no mistake, everyone who hears my words this morning, that sin deserves and draws God's hatred and wrath. Indeed, it is so certain that Paul pictures it here in the present tense as if the dam has already burst and God's wrath is already falling on sin. So believer, flee from sinful lusts as much as an unbeliever should flee from the wrath of God. The wrath to come. Abhor the nature of sin because sin deserves God's wrath. Second, abhor the nature of sin because sin belongs in your past. Paul says in verse 7, In these two you what? Once walked. When you were living in what? In them. But now who do you live in, believer? You live in? Christ, I don't know if you've realized this, but sin has a part, has a has a place in your life. Sin belongs in your life, believer. You know where it belongs, in your past. First Corinthians six nine through eleven says, "Do not be deceived." Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I'm in that verse, and yet verse 11 says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, those sins used to define you, but believer, you have to understand by faith according to what God says, they no longer define you anymore. So cast them off. If any man is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. So cast them off, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, as Paul says in Romans 13:14, And as Paul so eloquently says in Ephesians 5, 8, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. Now that you've been made clean, why would you go back to the mud? Now that you have been brought to the light, why would you live in the shadows? Think of it, as Paul says in Romans 6, verse 25, those are the things of which you are now ashamed. And that's why 1 John says, right? God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Walk in the light, even as He is in the light, that you may have fellowship with Him and with each other. Confess your sins, for He is faithful and just, to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Walk as a child of the light in fellowship with God by killing sin for christ these are the things of which you are now ashamed why would you want to go back to it it belongs in your past so how do we kill the idolatry of sin and self that seeks to dethrone christ from our hearts first abhor the nature of sin that deserves god's wrath and belongs in my past and second adore the nature of christ if i'm to worship christ above all and focus on Him as preeminent over my will, my mind, and my heart, then I must grow in my knowledge and love of Christ's worth. As Paul will say later in verse 10, our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. There is no shortcut to sanctification. It involves, as Eugene Peterson put it, a long obedience in the same direction. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory into another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And by the way, avoiding sin is not just a well, I'm not going to do this anymore. It is a put off, put on. How do you put off sexual impurity? By putting on purity notice the next argument that Paul is going to say in verse 12 I'm jumping ahead but he says if you are to put to death therefore what is earthly in you he goes into verse 12 put on then as God's chosen one holy and beloved compassionate hearts and all these different things you must put on the right character the right clothes to remove the wrong ones and that only comes as you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ day by day through the pages of scripture I must transform my mind, my heart, and my affections into his image by the Spirit of God. This is by preaching the gospel to myself every day. It involves a steadfast pursuit of seeking Christ, of knowing him and loving him more. If you're sitting there thinking, I am struggling in my fight against sexual immorality and impurity and evil desires and passions and covetousness, which is idolatry, I would encourage you go right back to Colossians 1 and 2, which you might not have been paying attention to, and realize how glorious Jesus is. That you deserve to worship no one else but the one who died to set you free. Free from the law. Free from sin. Free from hell and condemnation. He deserves your very life, your heart, your will, your ambitions. And give yourself to Him. Love Him more. And love sin less. It is the, as I mentioned several weeks ago, the only thing that drives out a sinful affection is the expulsive power of Of a new affection. Love of Jesus Christ. I must by God's Spirit through God's Word come to a greater knowledge of God's Son. In my life I've tried everything in my fight against sin. Everything imaginable. Every Bible verse. Every internet filter. Everything you've ever seen. What brought me the victory is falling in love With Jesus Christ more and more as I beheld his glory in the Word of God. I must learn to abhor the nature of my sin and I must learn to adore the nature of my Savior who died to set me free. This is where victory is found. There is glory and there is victory in Christ. I must let the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, do battle for my heart, my mind, and my affections. So I want to encourage you this morning, believer, in your struggle against sin, to not hide in the shadows for another moment. Walk in the light as a child of the light. Kill sin for Christ. Do battle against the sinful desires within you with all the resources that are yours in Jesus. You say, well, what does that mean? I'll let you know, okay? So if this is you, here's some direction this morning. We saw what those resources that are yours in Christ are in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It's the fuller learning, it's the faithful leaders, and it's the fervent love of the church are all resources that God has given you in Christ to kill sin for his glory. You will not kill sin if you try to kill sin on your own. Won't happen. I, I as your pastor, am here for you. We, as your elders and shepherds, are here for you. We, as your brothers and sisters in Christ, are here for you to give you the fuller learning, the faithful le- leading, and the fervent love that it belongs to you in Jesus. And so I would encourage you in your fight against sin to use each and every one of those resources. There's no quick fix. That's what we see here. This is a battle. I've only gone through the first point. We've got two more to go. Whew. But I want you to know that though this is a battle, this is a winning battle. As by the spirit of God, we set our minds to seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and not on things of this earth. There is glory, there is victory in Jesus Christ. So pursue it, seek it. This morning, take that step to kill sinful desires within you, that in all things Christ might be preeminent. I'll be in the back, the elders will be at the other exits and I encourage you to talk to us and let us help you as we help each other live for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ here at this place. We'll look at the rest of the passage next week, but for now, this is the Word of God from Colossians 3, 5-7, through 7, which I commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until He appears. To that end, let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the hope of Jesus. Father, I thank You this morning that sin for those who are in Christ is no longer a comfort is no longer a resting place for that would mean we are dead in it but I thank you this morning that for those in Christ the presence of sin means a battle. And so, Father, our very struggle with sin this morning testifies that we belong to you. And so, Father, I I ask that your grace would be at work at this time, that we as a congregation would respond to your word, and that we would take steps this week, even today, even after this service, take steps in killing sin for the glory of Christ within us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.